Well, again, welcome to Freedom. For those of you in the room and to those of you who are with us online, welcome to Freedom Online. We are so glad to have you be a part of worship today. It is a chilly day outside, but it is a sweet, warm uh, place to be here today, and it's good to have you here. I know that uh, it has been an unforgettable week for all of us, hasn't it? Uh, Some of us probably said, I wish that I could forget it, but uh, it has certainly been a week that will be remembered in history. I've been warned multiple times uh, before today, don't dare say anything about this week uh, when you take the platform on Sunday, and I'm not about to heed that, because uh, if, if the church cannot speak with some relevance at a time like this, then what's the point? Jesus was the most relevant person who's ever walked on the face of the planet, so we had better be able to speak in the moments like this. Don't get tense. I know that's part of what's wrong right now is we live at a time where one of the symptoms of of the problem is when Christians are together and they're uptight at the thought that somebody might speak to an issue that was in any way political because they know how polarized we are and how much we are prone to hurt each other. So if you're uptight at the thought that I'm about to speak to this for a few minutes, you can relax. I'm not going to offend anybody. I'm going to hopefully help us regain some perspective about what's going on. I don't really care uh, what position you come from to what we're going to talk about for the next couple of minutes. I want to remind us of what we share in common. At some level, I think all of us have been deeply disturbed by a lot of what we've seen going on and a lot of that just sort of crystallized in, in some particular moments this week. I read some things uh, Friday and Saturday that weren't surprising. They were sort of an expected response from leaders in other points around the globe that the Lord really brought back to mind for me this weekend. Leaders in places like China, Iraq, and North Korea, where they live under just tyranny, where there's so little freedom and where the rulers truly can rule with an iron fist, And how those leaders are very specifically speaking out right now. They're taking advantage of this opportunity to say, I mean, literally, I'm I'm not paraphrasing very much. You see, democracy doesn't work. This is why we will never be democratic. America has shown us democracy doesn't work, and we would never want that. And the Lord has brought that line back to mind again and again this weekend. And part of what he has said in that is... Don't, don't miss that. Don't miss the truth in that. See, democracy is a good thing, but democracy alone doesn't work. We, we have made the mistake in America of thinking that democracy and the way that we do what we do in terms of politics and how a country is run and a particular political affiliation, we have come to believe that that is a big part of our salvation, that that is a big part of our security. And we believe it almost universally. We believe it as strongly in the church as outside the church. And I'm not sure that we don't believe it more strongly from within the church. We believe in political solutions to our problems. And what I want to remind you of, for starters, is this. Democracy has never been the solution. It's never been the solution in the world, and it's never been the solution in America. The solution in America was discovered not in the 1770s. It was discovered in the 1730s and 40s. Because you see, the revolution would have never happened and democracy never would have been formed had it not been preceded by a great revival known as, as the First Great Awakening. The, the colonies here were only about 10% Christian. 
This was not a, a Christian nation in the making. It was a heathen group. And the Spirit of God broke out and moved like a wildfire across the colonies. And people's lives were transformed. And the way that they looked at each other, because they were, they were so divided... They all had different ideas, and they were so against each other. And they, I mean, it wasn't that they just drew lines and said, you know, we're Rhode Island, and you're Massachusetts, but you're just as good as us, and we think highly of you. No, they were highly divided people. And the Spirit of God moved among those people, and it caused them to begin to think like people who belonged to the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, ideals like freedom, respect, Honor, compassion, mercy, generosity, all of these things are fundamental to the kingdom. And out of that, ideals arose from which democracy was birthed. You see, you never would have gotten democracy without revival. Democracy was just a, a natural byproduct where in democracy we call for justice for everyone. We don't have anyone who gets to be a tyrannical ruler over all of us. Democracy is just this wonderful outgrowth of that. But what has happened over time is we have gradually, generation by generation, gotten further and further away from understanding as a nation where the kingdom of God defines everything and democracy just gets birthed out of that, we began to believe that democracy and our political positions were the solution, that that was the saving thing. And by the way, we tried to import that. We continue to try to import that to other countries around the world. We're going to make you better by making you democratic. That never fixes the problem. I mean, we, we'll go into places like Iraq, and I'm not trying to take a position one way or the other about going in there, but I'm telling you, you can go into a troubled place like Syria or Iraq and say, we're going to fix you by teaching you to be democratic. It doesn't ever work. Because you see, democracy isn't the solution. The kingdom of God is the solution. Because in the kingdom of God, people love one another. They, they love people who aren't like them. They treat each other with honor and respect, even though there are great differences of opinion. The kingdom of God then allows people to begin to operate under the rule of law, where I will yield my rights for your good. Democracy doesn't work unless you first enter into the kingdom of God. And what we're seeing is those tyrannical rulers in the world today who are pointing a finger saying, see, democracy doesn't work. They're right. At one level, democracy doesn't work where the kingdom of God doesn't rule the day. And in the church, we have lost sight of what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. Because the church, just like the world around us in America, has come to believe two fundamental lies that have come from hell itself. Jesus said that Satan is the father of all lies. When you see a lie that has become pervasively believed, you can bet that the architect of what is going on here is Satan himself. And I want to just remind you of these two fundamental lies right now that are driving America to the crazy place that we are right now. And the first one is, is simply this. You should be afraid. You should be scared right now. And you may say, what? That's not really that big of a deal. Oh, it's a very big deal. Everything that's happening right now in the political landscape of America, and I don't just mean like in Washington and Montgomery. I'm talking about at the, even at the grassroots level. Everything that's driving our conversation today is driven by fear. If you're a conservative, here's the thing that's driving you. You should be afraid of those liberals. 
They're going to destroy America. They're going to make a socialist country out of us. We're going to cease to be who we were as a country. We will be torn apart as a country. And if you're a liberal, you're being told that Donald Trump is the devil himself, that those Trump supporters, they're a bunch of gun-toting rednecks, and they are out to destroy American democracy. And fear from the politicians, from the, from the mainstream media, and from social media. Fear is what's driving everything. If you just take a moment to step back and read what's being written and listen to what's being said, fear is the driving force. And Satan is the driver behind that saying, you should be afraid. How do you correct a lie? You have to replace it with the truth. And the truth is, if you belong to Jesus, you absolutely shouldn't be afraid. 365 times in the scriptures you are told, fear not, do not be afraid, be of good courage. Why? Because our security is not in who's in power in Congress. It is not in how many conservatives or liberals sit on the Supreme Court. It has nothing to do with who is the president. Our security is found completely in Christ. We belong to the kingdom of God. Our allegiance to his kingdom and his rule supersedes everything else. We need not stress for one minute about whether a Democrat or a Republican was elected as the senators over the state of Georgia or who's going to sit in the White House because those things will not change God's kingdom agenda. It will not and everything in us right now that, that's making you just sort of squirm and go, yeah, preacher, but, but this matters. This stuff really matters. In the grand scheme of things, I want to tell you, it doesn't. The kingdom of God marches forcefully forward, and we should celebrate that. We should rest in that. Heaven is still open, and Jesus is still on the throne, and the people of God are not limited in any way in moments like this from demonstrating the values of the kingdom of God. Which brings us to the second lie. And here's the second one. This is where it really rubber meets the road. The second great lie of the devil to us today is the enemy has been identified. And the enemy is a big group of Americans. It's the Americans who don't think like you. They are the enemy. And if you're a conservative, you're clear that that enemy is the liberals. And if you're a liberal, you are clear that that enemy is Donald Trump and the conservatives. And we all know where we are today. We all know where we stand on this. And we know, if you look at social media today, it is jam-packed with all of the, the rhetoric that is supposed to convince us that our side is right, whichever side of that line you fall on, and that it is correct that we should rally ourselves against the other side because our hope is found in getting rid of those devils and getting our people into power. And I want to tell you that is a lie from the devil. If Jesus were here today, I am 110% sure that he would not be lobbying for the Republicans or the Democrats. It is not coincidental that when Jesus arrived in history that he selected a time when if ever you were going to be political. If ever there was going to be a clear-cut situation where we know which side is right and we know which side is wrong and we know which side politically you should lobby for, he arrived at that time. The Romans were the cruel oppressors. The Jewish people were the people of God and they were the oppressed. If ever there was a time to lobby politically, that would have been it. 
And his followers could not understand why on earth Jesus never spoke a word, never lifted a finger to lead a political cause. He never did anything to oppose Rome and to run Rome out because he was so clear that his kingdom was a different kind of kingdom. It would not be ushered in through political reform. And in fact, to try and make it about political reform would completely remove the power of of what the kingdom was all about. That he was introducing a kingdom that was built on grace, forgiveness, love, compassion, and justice for all. And do you see how the lie that the enemy is right here among us? It's those liberals. It's those conservatives. That that completely destroys the message of the kingdom. And I'm not saying this to beat anybody up, but at some point we must look in a mirror, friends, and recognize the enemy is here. And in a sense, we ourselves have become the enemy. We have become the enemy of what God wants to do. We had better hear the truth and let the truth of God replace the lie of the enemy. The lie is that the enemy is other Americans who don't think like you. And the truth is this. It's found in Ephesians 6.12, which says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it is against the powers and principalities, the authorities... And, and the evil that exists in the heavenly realms. All of those terms, that whole passage that follows, is about how our struggle is not with people. We think it's with people, but it is with an unseen world. Satan himself and the demons that follow him who have an agenda that is at cross purposes with what God wants to do. And that gets manifest in the world in a way that you are led to believe that the real threat is those other people who don't think like you. You see, Jesus was declaring the agenda of the kingdom when in Matthew 5, in the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, he said to people who were actively being oppressed by the Romans, love your enemies. He says, you've been told to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love them and don't resist them. Friends, America will not get any better through any future election if that's all we do. If all we do is try and use political reform, we'll never get there. We'll never get to a better place. The good news is this. America can be completely restored to a healthy place again. And Washington can't take us there. And Montgomery can't take us there. The only thing that will get us there is for us to embrace a fresh work of the Spirit of God. The same thing that ushered in revolution and democracy is the same thing that will bring us back to a healthy place again. The church must welcome the work of the Spirit of God, but the message of the kingdom of God. And I want to tell you, within the kingdom, within the kingdom, there is no, hear me on this, there is no room for Democrats and Republicans to hate each other. No room. I'm going to say this as plainly as I can. Don't ever let a word be spoken in this place or any gathering of this church where we are going to to bash 
or speak against our brothers and sisters who hold a different position from us because that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. We serve a a higher power, a Lord whose name is Jesus. And his mandate for us is to love one another, to show respect and honor to one another. That's the beautiful thing about how this country was formed. It was built on these ideals. E pluribus unum, from many, one. That only happens where Jesus is Lord. So don't lose heart. We're in a great position right now for the church to be the church. For us to look and be different, to truly be salt and light. So don't you dare walk out into the world and act like you're afraid or that that we're just doomed, that we're overcome. We're not overcome. Jesus declared to his disciples as they're about to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, I'm establishing the church. And even hell itself is not going to be able to thwart the church. The church marches forward, and we're a part of that movement. So let's be salt and light. Let's don't be afraid, and let's determine more than we ever have. Whatever position you find yourself in, you make it your goal to love and pray for people, specifically target those people who don't think like you. If you hate Nancy Pelosi, pray for Nancy Pelosi and determine to love her. If you hate Donald Trump, start praying for Donald Trump and, and make it a point to love him. And those people who support those people that you naturally can't stand, you start making it a point to reach out and love them and stop trying to straighten them out. And let's look in the mirror and realize maybe I'm the one who needs my heart straightened out because of what I've harbored toward other people. Are you with me? We, we should be filled with hope and encouragement right now. Why don't we just stop and just pray together for ourselves and for our country and for the church here. Lord Jesus, we need you. We need you all the time. But there are moments where we see so clearly how desperate we are for a fresh move of your spirit. And we're there. We feel like we have so much. And yet, as you said to the church in Laodicea, we are poor and naked and blind and we don't even see it. Help us to see ourselves as we really are. Help us to see how bankrupt we are apart from you. Well, we're grateful for where we live. We're grateful for this country and for its heritage. But we don't put any confidence in that. Help us, Lord to learn to live as members of the kingdom of God, as the family of God. We pray that you would bring this nation back together, but not around the Constitution, not around a political set of ideals. Lord, draw us back together around you, around your throne and your greatness and the beauty of what it means to belong to the kingdom of God. Holy Spirit, we beg you for mercy. Please, would you once again come and breathe life into your church. Make us once again the most powerful redemptive force on the planet. We welcome your work. We pray for your mercy, and we trust you for the days ahead. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, Amen. Well, with that said, let's turn our attention to to the Scriptures again. And I'll give you a compressed version of what I was going to share today since you already got a sermon on the front end. We started a series two weeks ago that uh, we'll spend most of the month of January focused on, 
and it is entitled uh, Living with Margin. And if you've got your outline, you can go ahead and pull that out as we turn our attention there. In the 1980s, a figure whose name you probably won't recognize, his name was Kame Shuji, was among the real movers and shakers in Japanese culture in the business world. He was a young man who, when he graduated from college, he went to work in the Osaka branch of Ace Securities, and he got kind of a low-level position, as people often do out of college. And he was put in their external uh, marketing, the cold call role of, of just calling up individuals and businesses, trying to solicit their business, trying to get them to invest. It's very difficult to earn a living doing that. And he was doing what everybody else in that uh, company would do in that particular position. You came in at 8.40 in the morning and you worked until 5 in the afternoon and you did that Monday through Friday. It was a typical 40-hour week. And he discovered very quickly that he could not succeed at the level that he wanted to working a 40-hour week. So he made some adjustments. Instead of coming in at 8.40 in the morning, he started coming in at 6.50. And instead of going home at 5, he started working until 10 o'clock at night. Instead of working five days a week, he worked seven days a week. And that became the norm for him. And what he found was, by more than doubling his hours, he was really able to get ahead of all of the people around him. He was able to become a bright, shining star. And he started making a lot of money and making a lot of money for other people. And as he was excelling, they got to that point in time where the Nikkei index, that bubble burst and uh, everything's tanking. So he just worked that many more hours. He worked that much harder and he was crushing it. He was making money while most everyone around him was losing money. And he became widely recognized because of his great success. I mean, people wanted him to be their guy. In fact, he, he became so recognized that he made the what in Jap, uh, Japan is well known as he made the legendary list of Kigyo Senshi, which is their list of the corporate warriors of Japan. He's being written up in all kinds of journals and publications because of just what a, a star he is in the business world. The young business leaders idolized him. They all wanted to be like him. That is, right up until the day that he went to take part in a sales conference, and he suddenly dropped dead. He dropped dead of a myocardial infarction. When his body was examined and a study was done to try and figure out exactly what, what had happened, that this healthy young man who was such a rising star had dropped dead, what doctors concluded was that he died of sheer exhaustion and overwork. And the really strange thing is that in Japanese culture, where there's such a, an emphasis on long hours and such a work ethic, that they have actually identified a disorder and named it the Kuroshi disorder, the, the death by Kuroshi, that is death by overwork. Because there are so many people who have followed his example. They have literally just worked themselves to death and their hearts give out at an early age. Well, I want to tell you, Shuji's death and Shuji's problem is nothing that is unique to Japan. America has caught the same disease. Americans are eaten up with the same kind of drive that has affected so many in the Japanese culture. I don't know whether you realize this or not, but in the United States, this has so affected the, the way that we think and the way that we work that we are now at a place that there is no country in the world 
with similar wealth where people work as many hours as Americans do. In fact, Samuel Huntington wrote that Americans work longer hours, have shorter vacations, and retire later than people in any country on earth with comparable wealth. Think about that. Isn't there something broken about that? We are among the the wealthiest and most comfortable countries on the planet, societies on the planet, and yet there's no other country with comparable wealth and comfort where people have choose to work as long hours, take as few vacations, and work till as late in life as what Americans do. We're working ourselves to death, sucking the joy out of life. That's part of the reason that we're pressing into this series on learning to live with margin. Now, we said last week in talking about living with margin that margin is that gap between what you have to do and what you have the resources in terms of time, energy, money to, to do things. There, there needs to be a gap between your responsibilities and, and what you're capable of doing. Now, what Shuji did was he, he ended up letting his responsibilities and his workload and everything come all the way to the limit of what he could do and go beyond that. And when you do that, that's when you wind up with a, a nervous breakdown or a physical breakdown. The goal here is to create a bigger gap so that there's room for the things that really do matter in life outside of just having to go to work and take care of financial responsibilities. And so what we talked about last time is some different areas where we want to have margin in life, that we need physical margin so that we're not just always exhausted and burned out. We need spiritual margin so that we're not in a position that we're going to repeatedly give in to the same temptations again and again and so that we have we have enough margin that we can actually engage in ministry and make time commitments to do things that matter. We, we need emotional margin so that we have space for the relationships that matter most, that we really have time to spend with God and to spend with friends and family and to have deep, meaningful relationships. We need financial margin so that we're not always under the burden of debt and, and just always wondering if we're going to be able to pay our bills. And we need time margin so that we're not always at that place of feeling like we're running behind and there's never enough time to get everything done and that causes us to be stressed out. Wouldn't you agree that we, we live in a world that is just becoming more and more fast-paced? I mean, isn't it almost a joke to, to look back and read the things that were being written in the 1960s by the futurists of the time who said in those days, the biggest single stressor in American life they were predicting in another 50 years was going to be trying to figure out what to do with all the spare time that we would have on our hands. Because people were making so much more money, things were becoming so automated, life was going to be so easy that we wouldn't know what to do with all of our spare time. And now that here we are in 2021, doesn't that just feel like a cruel joke? When the truth of the matter is, we've arrived at a place today where the average American today, compared to 100 years ago, we get two and a half hours less sleep than Americans did per day 100 years ago. It's not because the human body has changed and we need less rest. We're going at such a pace we don't have time to rest. Well, we're going to see what we can do to reverse that as we talk for a few minutes about learning to slow down. So I want to begin by just quickly naming for you some of the the ways that always being in a hurry harms us, and then we're going to talk about some things that we can do to overcome that. First of all, we know that being in a hurry 
just consistently increases our stress. It, it just does. It means that we don't have any time for ourselves. We don't have any time for self-care. Song of Solomon 1.6 said this, I had no time to care for myself. Do you ever find yourself in that mode where you feel like you are always busy taking care of everyone around you and you really don't have any time to recharge your own battery? Man, that just leaves you at a place of being stressed out and having an empty tank. The second thing it does is hurry just decreases my joy. The faster you go, the less you enjoy life. It's, it's just a fact. You know, we'll fly across the country on business and get no enjoyment out of that. Compare what it's like to fly coast to coast in America when you're going 600 miles an hour versus if you could just drive across America or slow down and bike across or walk across America. How much more would you take in and enjoy? Hurry decreases my joy. Job 9.25 says this, My days go by faster than a runner. They fly away without seeing any joy. That's what rush will do. Thirdly, hurry makes me less productive. We don't believe that, by the way, do we? We think we can speed it up and be more productive. And here's the way that we, we really try and speed things up. We all want to multitask. You, you realize that's one of the major curses of the current generation that we're in. We all think that we'll be more efficient and faster by multitasking. So we all try to multitasking. Can I tell you a little secret? We stink at it. We think we're good at it and we're terrible at it. Humans are terrible at multitasking. It makes us less efficient and less effective, trying to do multiple things at once. And we've actually gotten to the point that it's hard for us to do any one thing at a time. In fact, it's a great exercise just to come into worship where we just focus on one thing as we worship, that we just focus on one thing as we're taught. And for some people, it makes us incredibly uh, uncomfortable. At least the folks at home have the advantage that you can watch online and you can sit there and surf the web at the same time. That's more comfortable for most of us, isn't it? It's harder to cheat and get away with that in the, in the worship room. But, but we're like that. I mean, have you noticed we don't even know how to relax and entertain ourselves without trying to multitask? I mean, and, and Stone, you, you guys watching the younger generation, have you, is there anybody below the age of 40 that can sit down and like watch TV or watch a movie without having their phone in their hand and doing this the whole time they're watching? We can't do one thing at a time anymore. And yet we're terrible at this. We're always rushing and we wind up less productive. Proverbs 19.2 says this, a person in a hurry makes mistakes. Have you ever discovered that the hard way? You ever tried to, to cook something and follow a recipe and you've gone too fast and screwed up? Jackie and I do Green Chef, the, the mail order thing. So we're making new recipes every week. And occasionally I actually get involved in that. And I try and speed it up because I'm really slow in the kitchen. And when I try and speed it up, I will pretty consistently screw it up. Hurry just bogs us down. Proverbs 21.5 says this, careful planning puts you ahead in the long run. Hurry and scurry puts you further behind. The fourth thing hurry does is it dries up our love. These last two things that I'll mention are the biggies. Anytime you become hurried in life, you know the people who pay the price for it? The people you love the most? Because it's a guaranteed thing when you get when your schedule gets overwhelmed and now you're having to rush to try and get everything done, we'll all do the same thing. We will skim off of the relationships that matter to us the most. So our quiet time with God, our time with our spouse or with our kids or with our friends, that's what we'll rob because we're in a rush needing to do the really important things. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 13 too, without love, I am no good to anybody but 
hurry robs us of loving will. And then fifth and finally, hurry keeps me from hearing God. You can't hear God in a hurry. Hurry is absolutely the death of prayer. You may need to write that one down. Hurry is the death of prayer. You, you can't have a meaningful prayer time if you're having to rush through it. You know, we're reminded all the time God has a plan for us. God is in a relationship with us. God is speaking to us, and yet we struggle to hear his voice. Well, I want to tell you, if you're rushing, you're not going to hear his voice. This whole thing of coming to God saying, oh, Lord, I just I want to meet with you. I want to hear from you. I want to know your plan for my life, and you've got about 30 seconds. You might as well go on because you're not going to hear anything when you're giving him a 30-second box to speak to you in. Hurry will just completely take the power and intimacy out of that. Psalms 46.10 has got to be one of our rallying cries. Be still and know that I am God. If I can learn to pace myself so that I can afford to be still and quiet in the presence of God for these little windows of time, then I can be aware of his voice as I go through all the other activities of the day. So all of this collectively, these things in a, in a hurried life lead to stress, fatigue, and damage. Damage to my body, my mind, my key relationships with people and God. So what do we do about it? Well, what we've got to do is learn to slow down our pace to have a healthier life. And that's what this series is all about. Is It's about learning to reorganize your life around the things that really matter. It's not a series on trying to just tell you the things that matter. Most of us are pretty clear on that. I mean, I've learned that most Christians, pretty early on, learn the things that really matter. What we don't know how to do is get our lives built around those things. A healthy pace of life helps us to, sort of forces us to restructure. So five things to consider in trying to slow our pace to build our lives again around what really matters. And the first one is this. We must learn to be content. Philippians 4.11, Paul says this, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. The key operative word there is learned. How many of you know that contentment does not come naturally? You ever notice that? We're not naturally content people, are we? Naturally, what we want is more. We want to get further ahead. We want to do better. We want to achieve. And it's not that all of that is a bad thing. But when that dominates our thinking, we lose all sense of, of contentment. Paul says you can learn this, but in learning that, part of what we've got to do is be willing to pause and consider, what is it that drives me to always need more, more, more? More stuff, more activity, more attention, more recognition, more. What drives that? I mean, a lot of different things can drive that. It can be ambition, but it also can be a lot of other things, fear, insecurity, jealousy, guilt, Anger, ego, all kinds of things can drive that. But I think the biggest thing that drives that is insecurity. We, we have this perverted sense of feeling like our worth and our value to other people is very much tied to our productivity. That if I can do more, then my life has greater value. If I can make more, if I can stay busy... I mean, I really do believe it's the thing that makes a lot of people so incredibly uncomfortable just to take downtime, whether it's vacation or Sabbath or, or whatever, just feeling like, I, I, I can't do this. I, I just can't be still. I, I can't just do nothing. 
What drives that? Why? Why do you need to do more all the time? For some of us, it's driven by this sense of insecurity, like somebody's going to think less of me if I'm just taking time just for me. If I'm just taking time for my batteries to get recharged, for something to be poured into me, that's insecurity that's driving that. As long as you confuse your worth and your work, you'll always be rushed and stressed and you'll never learn to enter into the rest that God has for us. Ecclesiastes 4, 6 says, but I say it is better. Everybody say it is better. It is better to be satisfied with the few things you have than to always be struggling to get more. I want to ask you, as you think about 2021, is more stuff or more activities or more achievements in 2021 going to make you more happy? Will they? Some of us need to actually ponder that. Because some of us have got major goals of doing more. And I just want to ask you, will more make you more happy? Because I, I tend to believe that if what we have now, if we're not happy now, that more isn't going to equal being more happy. Contentment is the key. By the way, another part of contentment is just determining I have got to stop comparing my life to somebody else. Because contentment and comparing are arch enemies. They are mutually exclusive. You can't compare your life to the people around you and, and find contentment. You just can't. Some of us grew up always being compared to a brother or a sister, and so we spent all of our lives doing that comparison. We're comparing to our friends. We're comparing to our peers. You can't find contentment doing that. Proverbs 14.30 says, A peaceful heart leads to a healthy body, but jealousy is like cancer in the bones. Jealousy is rooted in comparison. Comparison robs us of contentment. You know what the biggest tool of comparison is in America today, at least from my perspective? Social media. Everybody gets to put their best version of their life right out there online for everyone to see. Look what I'm eating. Look what I'm doing. Look where I'm vacationing. Look what a perfect marriage I have. Look what a perfect family I have. I mean, maybe that's not our intention every time, but it sure does feel like it when you spend much time on social media, doesn't it? And I probably better not go too far with this thought, but let me just say this. As a pastor, it is an interesting other perspective on those things because those beautiful people who post their perfect families online come to pastors to tell you what a train wreck their lives really are. And when you know the true stories of people's lives, and I'm not saying this to put anybody down. I'm just saying from a pastor's perspective, you learn pretty quickly we are all broken. We are all miserable wretches apart from the grace of God. Amen? And it just becomes comical to look online and to see people that you're like, yeah, you guys are fighting so bad that one of you just sent the other one to jail. You guys haven't slept together in three years. But here we are. We're the perfect family. And I got the most awesome husband of anybody in the world. And you just want to go. That's crazy. It's totally phony. It's totally bogus. And yet that's what we compare to. Oh, I just wish that I had a marriage like that. I wish I had a wife like he has. And it's like, well, if you just knew the truth, man, they're struggling. They don't know if they're going to make it another week. But we play this comparison game with something that doesn't even exist except on social media. It doesn't exist at their house. But we're comparing our reality to somebody else's ideal. And we always lose in that comparison, don't we? 
So just give up on it. It is a tool of the enemy to make you feel bad about your marriage and your life so that you're never content. Paul says you can learn to be content. The second thing that you've got to do if you're going to slow your pace of life is learn to say no. Let's just practice. Everybody say it together. No. One more time. No. Okay, that's your homework for this week. Go home and, and practice that. No is a complete sentence, by the way. Jackie and I kind of rib each other about this. You don't have to explain why you said no. Jackie and I both will tend to do this, but I think she actually trumps me in explaining everything. And I'm like, baby, you don't have to explain anything to anybody beyond no. Mm -mm. Thanks for asking. I'm not going to. No is a complete sentence. I struggle to practice that too sometimes. I feel like I need to tell you why because here's what keeps us from saying no. I don't want to disappoint you. If I tell you no, you might be disappointed in me and you might reject me. We get into a lot more trouble saying yes than we do by saying no. Don't you know that's a fact? We get in so much more trouble saying yes than we ever do by saying no. Solomon said it this way in Proverbs 20, 25. An impulsive vow, that is a quick yes, is a trap. Later you'll wish you could get out of it. Don't you know that's a fact? You know, at the beginning of the year... We, we love to make our resolution list, our, our to-do list for the year, all the new things we're going to do in the year ahead. Can I make a suggestion to you? Start the year with a not-to-do list. Make a list of the things that you are going to break your commitment to, that you are going to give up and say no to just to get free to focus on the things that matter. Don't make a, a promise without pondering and don't decide yay or nay on what you're going to commit to without deliberating. And Jesus is the one who taught us this principle. Count the cost before you make a commitment. Because every time we say yes to something, there's a price tag that goes with that. When you say yes to doing something or particularly some ongoing commitment, you have to ask yourself, what ultimately am I going to give up so that I can do that? Because, I mean, how many of us under normal circumstances have just got an extra 12 or 15 hours a week floating around that we just don't know what we're going to do with? Most of us do not. So you're going to, every new commitment, you're giving something up. Count the cost. What am I going to give up to do this? So much easier to get in than it is to get out. Isn't that always the case? How much easier is it to get into debt than to get out of debt? How much easier is it to get into a relationship than it is to get out of an unhealthy relationship? So much easier to get into trouble than to get out of trouble. So when it comes to New Year's commitments, don't tell me all the things that you're going to do in 2021 unless you can give me an equal list of all the things that you're going to let go of in 2021. I started my list of, I didn't even call them resolutions for me, they're just adjustments, start of the year adjustments for 2021. I started with what I'm going to, I mean, the, the very top of my list is something that I'm going to let go of something so that I have time for something else. So think in terms of those kinds of trade-offs. We, we love to start the new year with diets too, don't we? I, I'll confess, I'm art, I don't call it a diet, but I have radically changed my eating as of January 1st. So whether you call it a diet or not, how many of us would confess, yeah, I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the wagon. Some of you, a couple of you admit you're on the wagon with me. Let's do it together. 
Can I suggest a diet that we all need to, to get on in 2021? An activity diet. A diet from being committed to as many activities. Only committing to the things that really matter. And I know some of us would say, when it really gets down to it, that's hard for me because it's so hard to say no. Anybody, does anybody struggle with saying no besides me? Am I the only one? Jackie and I are the only two. A couple of others say, yeah, that's, that's hard. If you struggle to say no, let me give you this passage. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. We're grateful for that, the grace of God that saves us. But did you know the grace of God does more than save you? It says the grace of God teaches us to say what? It teaches us to say no, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It teaches us ultimately to say no to everything that isn't the will of God and every activity that I commit to that God didn't call me to is outside the will of God. The grace of God enables me to say no to those things. A third thing that I've got to do to learn to slow the pace of life and that is to learn to take a weekly Sabbath day of rest. Now, God's Word is full of principles, commands, teachings, instructions that are designed for our good and to get us really connected to the heart and life of God. And we all know that in the Old Testament, the, the best-known summary of those things, of the core pieces, are ten instructions that are given in the book of Exodus and again in the book of Deuteronomy. What do we call those? The Ten Commandments. That wasn't a trick question. We all know this is... This is, these are the ten fundamental big building blocks of what it means to be human and to be a part of the family of God, the community of God. And they are biggies. I mean, think about it, just how big these are within the Ten Commandments. Don't kill people around you. That's a good one. Do not steal what belongs to the people around you. That's another good one. Don't lie about the people around you. Really important one if you're going to actually live in community with people. Don't have sex with other people's husbands and wives. That's a big one. These are big building blocks. Take a day of Sabbath where you do no work every week. What? Is, is anybody else a little surprised that as he's laying these huge foundational blocks of what it means to be human and in the image of God, that right in the middle of don't kill each other, don't sleep with each other's spouses, don't steal from each other, and take a full day every week that you rest. Who would have ever thought that that would be in God's top ten? Now let's be clear. The Ten Commandments are designed for our good. They're not designed for God. It's not like God goes, man, I just feel so much better if I, when I can make old Wayne do these ten things. My, my life is so much better. It's not about that at all. God understands Todd is going to be a far better human being when he does these ten things. His life is going to begin to unravel if he doesn't live by these ten things. And God understands rest is fundamental to you being a decent human being. And if you don't follow this, if you don't take a full day every week that is true rest, you're out of the will of God, you're disobeying the commands of God, and you are turning yourself into something that is so far from being a healthy, good human being. It's pretty strong, isn't it, to realize this is in God's top ten. It's a big deal to God. Exodus 20 says, God speaking, you have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day of rest dedicated to the Lord your God, and on that day no one in your household may do any work. It's a big deal to God. 
Rest is actually one of the biggest themes in the scriptures. It is from cover to cover. You might not have ever noticed it before. You pay attention as you read the scriptures. It's amazing what a major issue rest is as a theme of the Bible. But I want to be clear. When we talk about you slowing down and learning to take a Sabbath every week, we are not just saying take an off day. Mm -mm. Don't even call it that, by the way. Don't call it your off day. And the reason I don't want you to call it that is because you'll cheat on your off day. If that's all it is, if it's just your off day, you'll cheat on that. You'll start cheating on it. No, it's a holy day. It is a Sabbath day. Now, in a perfect world, I would suggest to you that it works best if you have a career that allows you a five-day work week. Because in our lifestyles, there's so much other stuff to be done around the house and chores and other responsibilities. It'll eat up a, a good chunk of another day just to take care of those things. And we're not talking about that being your Sabbath. Sabbath is not about a chore day. Do all the work around the house, around the yard, pay the bills. And all. No, that's not Sabbath. That's just a different form of work. A Sabbath is a day where he says you do no work. It can be a Sunday. It doesn't have to be a Sunday. So what does a Sabbath look like? Well, three things that need to happen on a Sabbath for it to really be a Sabbath. First of all, it needs to be a day of rest for my body. Yeah, that, that means literally just you get to sleep more. Sleep in, take a nap, take it easy. Make sure your body gets physically recharged. I think I told you before, it's interesting to note, in the French Revolution, as a part of that chaos, they banned, they abolished Sabbath. You don't get to take Sabbaths anymore. It was so destructive for the health of the French people, they had to reinstitute Sabbath because society was just coming unglued. People were losing their health because they didn't observe Sabbath. So we've got to get rest for the body. Secondly, I recharge my emotions, and there's a lot of different ways you do that. You, you find your own pattern, but... Some, some time for quietness, some time for fellowship with people who refill my tank, some time for recreation that's not competitive recreation, getting outdoors, doing the things that will just help you to emotionally get more back in the tank. And finally, the last piece of Sabbath is I, I have to refocus my spirit, and that's why worship is a key component of Sabbath. Spending time in the presence of God, spending time in the company of of God's family, things like worship and small group experience become a great part of a Sabbath experience because it's, it presses the reset button for us. It helps us to get a fresh perspective on things. I mean, I hope you leave today with a healthy, fresh perspective. You should every time you come into worship. Now, I want to tell you, I love sports. Sports does not accomplish that for me. Hunting, fishing, I enjoy those things. It does, those don't accomplish that. Shopping will not do that for you. But worship will, will do that. As I think about that idea of Sabbath, I'm reminded of the pastor who said on a Sunday, a guy in his church came up to me and said, Preacher, I, I, something really important. I need to come see you tomorrow. I've got to come talk to you. And the pastor said, well, I can't tomorrow. Tomorrow is my off day, but I'll be glad to carve out time on Tuesday. Let's get together on Tuesday. And the guy was offended. He, you know, you can see it in his face. What do you mean you can't tomorrow? So I told you tomorrow is my off day. I, I can't tomorrow, but I'll be glad to the next day. And his, the church member's response was, you take an off day? Well, the devil don't take an off day. The devil works seven days a week. The pastor is pretty sharp. He said, that's exactly right. Unless you want me to be like the devil, I'm not going to follow his example. Jesus, the Lord himself, took a day of rest and told us to do that. So who do you want my pattern to be, the devil or the Lord? That's actually pretty simple and sound, though, isn't it? I mean, who do you want your model to be? God himself took off one out of seven and commanded that we follow him. But 
Isn't that silly little story really a picture of how a lot of things work? I can tell you from a pastor's perspective, that little exchange eats our lunches. Just like stuff drives you crazy when you realize somebody's looking at you and they're judging you because you took a little time for yourself. Must be nice having an off day and all like that. Must be a luxury living the lifestyle. No, just trying to be a follower of Jesus who said we better take one out of every seven if we're even going to be human. So observing Sabbath, slowing down, having time for rest and recreation. Psalm 127 too says this, It is useless to rise early and go to bed late and work your worried fingers to the bone. Don't you know he enjoys giving rest to those that he loves? The fourth thing is just learn to trust in God's perfect timing. Impatience causes us to hurry. Discontentment and impatience drive us down this path. And impatience is ultimately so much rooted in a lack of trust in God. We aren't really convinced in here that God has our best best interests at heart, that God probably has a different agenda from us. And so we've got to push, push, push to make our agenda happen because we can't trust that God's ultimately going to work out what is best for us. Abraham's a prime example of that, isn't he? He wanted a kid, he wanted a kid, he wanted a kid. God promised him a kid. And when God didn't do it quick enough, what did he do? He went out and got somebody besides his wife to give him a kid. And the world has yet to recover from that as the Arabs and the Jews continue to fight all the time. We will push, push, push for the things that we want when we can't trust that if God wants that for me, he's going to make that happen in due time. Resting in God's plan and in God's timing is a key piece of this. And so... I guess one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, is faster really better? I mean, we always want things to happen, and we want them to happen now, but is faster really better? Because when you think about it, aren't the best things in life things that actually usually require time? I mean, think about how many things are just better with time. Everybody that likes wine will tell you aged wine is so much better. Aged cheese is so much richer. Aged beef is so much better. The good things require time. Now, I can tell you this. without it, I can tell you how to mature spiritually. That's not difficult to tell you. But I'll tell you what I can't tell you. I cannot tell you how to mature spiritually quickly. It takes time. And we have to trust in God's timing. Yes, God has a will and a plan for your life, but he also has a timetable for your life. There are going to be things that are in your heart that you want to push, push, push and make happen. And you need to be able to trust God's timing that that there's a right time for those things to happen. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God does everything just right and on time, but people can never completely understand what he is doing. If you're going to slow your pace, part of that has to be rooted in, I trust God's timing for accomplishing what he wants in my life. And sometimes the big picture things can drive us in that. That God gives you a vision for something that you know you're called to. You know it is a part of your destiny. I knew from pretty early on in my life, pastoring was going to be a big part of my destiny. I knew it's part of God's calling for my life. It's part of my wiring. It's the thing that I was supposed to do. But, I mean, God made that. He got me to a point that I was completely clear on that more than a decade ahead of me ever pastoring a church. And there were times when I was so tempted. I mean, I was already working hard, hard, hard at school and other things, pursuing, preparing myself for ministry. But yet 
there were times when I wanted to manipulate things and make it happen because I just knew this was in my heart. This is my destiny. I got to get there and make that thing happen. And ultimately, the Lord would take me time and again back to the place that you have to trust God's timing for that. Habakkuk 2.3 speaks of that, about God's vision for your life that he gives you. And he says, this vision is for a future time and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. If you cooperate, you can rest assured that God's plan for your life will be fulfilled. And then fifth and finally, I referenced this last time, the last message in this series. If you're going to learn to live at a slower pace and learn to say no to things so that you can, you're going to have to learn to use love as your filter in making decisions. I referenced the fact that you need a filter for making choices, and love needs to become that filter. In deciding where you're going to spend more time, more money, more energy on, we agreed all of those things are limited. They're finite. So I have to make really critical decisions. What am I going to say yes and no to in terms of what I spend money, time, and energy on? How do I decide? Sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's really hard. I mean, this is a good opportunity, but this is a good opportunity, and so is this, and I can't do all of this. How do you decide? Let love be the filter that helps you to decide. Now, sometimes it's not going to make it a real black and white thing, but many times it will. When opportunities are put before you and you're thinking, oh, should I commit to this? Should I not? The question that you need to be asking is, what is the more loving thing to do here? And in considering what is the more loving thing, remember the three loves that you're called to. Jesus said, you want to know what the most important command is? It is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And a second commandment is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. The three great loves that Jesus sums up. He said, all the law and prophets... All the scriptures are summed up in this. You've got to love God, you've got to love the people around you, and you've got to love yourself. And he doesn't like hold one way above the rest. If you don't do all three, you're going to have a screwed up life and you're not going to be a good follower of Jesus. So what's the more loving thing to do here? When you really process that, am I going to really have to rob something of those three in order to do this? If you have the gift of mercy and the gift of service, you're going to tend to want to focus all on loving the people around you by always serving them and doing for them, even to the detriment of sometimes your family, but much to yourself and even to the detriment of your time with God. What's the more loving thing to do? There are going to be plenty of times that that question is going to enable you to say, nope, because if I say yes to that, I'm going to have to cut out time with family or time with God or time that I could have spent just being able to exercise or read or do something that would have recharged me. What's the more loving choice? Ephesians 5.2, I love how the message translated says this. Mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. So when faced with two competing choices, ask what's the loving thing to do here. Now considering everything that we just said, here's the the main thought for the day. Anybody into racing in here? Anybody like to watch racing? We don't have any rednecks in the room. Okay, I'm sorry. I picked picked the wrong analogy. I'm not big into racing, but I always always loved the uh, Indy 500. That's the one race every year that I would watch. Love watching that. Watched enough racing to appreciate the fact that in every long-distance race, there's always going to be stuff that happens. Debris gets on the track. There's an accident. And what happens in that moment? 
Well, they're going to wave the yellow flag. And what do they do next? They immediately send out the pace car at Indy every year. It's like, what's the pace car going to be? It's always going to be a cool car. But what's the pace car out there to do? The pace car is out there to reset the race. They don't want to stop the race. What the pace car is going to do is he's going to slow down the speed of the race. He's going to get everybody adjusted to the exact same speed. And he's going to start taking paces, t- taking laps at a slower pace so they can deal with the, the garbage that's gotten in the way, get it out of the way, and then let the race continue. What I would suggest to you today is some of us really need to let the pace car set the, the pace for us. And some of us today need to let Jesus become for us the pace car. Sort of resetting everything. Where we step back and say, Lord, I, I'm committed to way too many things. And I need to start 2021 just being committed to you. And you set the pace. I won't assume that I'm committed to any other thing out there in terms of clubs or promises or whatever else. You show me anything that you want me to add as we reset the, the racetrack. I want to close with a, a little poem that I thought really speaks to, to living that kind of lifestyle. It's entitled, Slow Me Down, Lord. It says, Slow me down, Lord. Ease the pounding of my heart by the quieting of my mind. Steady my harried pace with the vision of the eternal reach of time. Give me amidst the confusion in my day the calmness of the everlasting hills. Break the tension of my nerves with soothing music of the singing streams that live in my memory. Help me, Lord, to know the restoring power of sleep. Teach me the art of taking minute vacations, of slowing down to look at a flower, to pat a stray dog, to chat with an old friend, or to make a new one. Teach me to watch a spider build a web or to smile at a child or to read a few lines from a good book. Remind me, Lord, that each day that the race is not always to the swift and that there's more to life than just increasing its speed. Lord, let me look upward into the branches of the towering oak and know that it grew great and strong because it grew slowly and it grew well. Are you tired of an overloaded, overstressed life? Or maybe you're feeling like, you know, i got a break from that with the pandemic, but maybe there's this anxiety in you building as it's like, oh, the pandemic's about to end and this life about to be just as hectic again. If you want to live a life that's not hurried and hectic and stressed out, then I want to just invite you to pray with me a prayer from Psalm 5110 where David said this, God, make a fresh start in me, shape a Genesis week. From the chaos of my life. Would you join me as we go to him in prayer right now? Lord, we want so much to center our lives around you. Around the way that you say that we should live. Around the things that really do matter. And the relationships that count the most. We confess to you that our lives at times have become chaotic. Because we've just gotten tangled up in so many things. So many commitments. Would you give us clarity to realize what really matters? I pray that you would show us even now and in the week ahead specific places where we need to just say no and step back. Where if we haven't been taking Sabbath, that we just carve that out. That we declare some day of the week to be a holy day and we just set that day apart for what you intended it to be. God, we ask you to do what David prayed for in Psalm 51. 
Make a new Genesis week for us, a day of, of new creation. Make our lives new as we center them on you. Maybe today you just need in your own heart to just open your life up to Jesus and say, Jesus, as a starting point, I just need you to be the center. I need you to be the Lord and King of my life. Invite him to do that. If you've never trusted him for forgiveness, start there. Just say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness for my sins. I need you to make me new. I want you to be the pace car of my life, leading me and just setting the pace. Lord Jesus, thank you for hearing and answering our prayers. I pray that you would minister peace and rest to tired and fractured souls today. We welcome your work and we pray this in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I surely hope that what you heard was relevant and helpful and above everything. I hope that what you experienced today really helped your heart to connect with the heart of God. Now, if what you heard uh, for you stirred up any questions or maybe led you toward uh, some type of spiritual decision, maybe you want to talk with someone about something that's on your mind, I would love to hear from you. And so I would encourage you, reach out by email. At the bottom of the screen, you see my email address. It's mark at myfreedomchurch.net. That's not going to go to a secretary or an assistant. That will come directly to me. I'd love to hear from you and talk with you about anything that's on your mind. And if in the future you're in our area, we would love for you to come and worship with us at Freedom Church. But until then, we invite you to access all of the sermon material that you find online. Again, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Hope that you have a great day.